Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's teaching is Mark 1 1 and Mark 8 27 through 35. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief of priests and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. Uh, hey, great job on the socially distanced seating right here. You guys really nailed that one. Um, man, it's good to have you today. I am so excited to jump back into the Gospel of Mark after being out for over six weeks of this series to return. Uh, if you're new to church or new to this church, one of the things that we do is we stand as we read the Word of God. And what that is, is that is a symbol of our hope as the people of God, that we actually want to be people underneath His authority. We actually want to be people that are not standing over the word and making our own decisions on life and then tweaking it to our own ends, but people that stand underneath the authoritative word of God and are shaped and formed by that. So every time that you're here and you stand, just keep that in mind. You're not just standing to hear some archaic words read over you. But you're standing as a symbol of our prayer, that we would be people that are shaped by the word of God. So what I want to do to that end is take a second and pray for us and pray that God would move and shape us this morning through this gospel of Mark, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for today and for the people that are here. We pray, as we've already prayed, that you would be with the sick among us, be with our friends and our family and our neighbors that are sick. And today, God, as we open up this gospel, we pray that it would come to us as gospel, that it would come to us as good news. It would come to us as an announcement, not of things that we need to do to earn your love, but that the work has been done, that we have been pursued. We have been people who have experienced the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you're alive today and you're drawing people to yourself and you're moving history to your ends and your purposes. So come and move, and I pray that you would help me be clear if there's anything that I say that's unhelpful. I pray that it would be quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name. Amen. I need to make a, a confession to you this morning. 
about two years ago, the gospel of Mark was my least favorite gospel in the Bible. And, and if you're like, I didn't know that pastors were allowed to have a least favorite. I'm not sure that we are <laughs> allowed to have a least favorite, but it really was. Given the other options uh, in Scripture, this was my least favorite. And, and, and that's weird to say, but it's true. I remember when we had our preaching meeting, and uh, we gathered with our, our preaching team from across all five of our congregations, and we do this to kind of pray and discern, where are you leading us, Jesus, in this next season? What book of the Bible, which is kind of that we t- typically like to pick books of the Bible, what book of the Bible are you leading us to anchor into and be shaped by? And lots of good options were thrown out, and somehow, out of 66 options, this gospel was the one that all of our preaching team was emphatically like, yes, this is the one that we're going to do. And so, for me, it was like, all right, I've got to figure out how to get my head and my heart into this. And, and, and I say that not because I didn't think it was authoritative or didn't think it was good or didn't think it was really inspired by the Holy Spirit. I believed all of that. I just knew a little bit more about Matthew, and I knew a little bit more about Luke, and I knew a little bit more about John, and thought that those were really unique, but wondered, like, Mark is so short, is there really something beautiful to be found here? And what was so crazy is getting into the gospel of Mark and going from that place to where I stand now, and I would just say this has been, for me, one of the most incredible, insightful, powerful things that I've ever had the chance to study. And interacting with some of you that have been around over the last several weeks, hearing this gospel and unpacking together what Mark is doing, both as an author, but also inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's just breathtaking. And so here's what I want to do today. Instead of just rushing back into chapter 11, which is where we left off, what I want to do is I want to pause for a minute because some of you have slept in the last six weeks, and some of you are fairly new and you've missed out on the gospel of Mark. So what I want to do is just kind of pause and give you an overview again of this book. What is this book about? What's the point of this book? Why this book in this moment? And, and so what I want to do is just kind of give a few questions, four questions that you and I need to explore together to understand the significance of this book for us in this moment. Sound good? Yeah, that's where we're going to go, because I've got the mic, and that's, that's the plan for today. Uh, he, here's the first question that I want you to think with me about is, who, who is Mark? Who is this author? It's interesting that the Gospel of Mark never tells us, it never gives us the name, um, but history tells us that the author of this Gospel account was a man by the name of John Mark. John Mark happened to be a really close friend and a traveling companion, almost like a, an assistant to the Apostle Peter. And John Mark, his family was really influential in the early church. Uh, Some scholars believe that actually John Mark's mother's house was used as the location for the Last Supper, uh, where Jesus gathered the night before his betrayal and death on a cross. And and so some scholars would say, actually, that was John Mark's mother's home where the Last Supper occurred. Uh, Other scholars say, we don't really know. But what we do know is that John Mark's home later becomes a significant gathering place for the early church, for the early Christians. It was a place where they would gather repeatedly for prayers and for the study of scriptures. And Mark is interesting because he's related to Barnabas. He, he had a kind of interesting relationship with the Apostle Paul that ended at first, like started to go sour, but then ended better. 
And later in life, he's traveling, he's working alongside of Paul, but mainly Peter. And what we have in the Gospel of Mark is fascinating because Peter essentially sits down with John Mark and he begins to recount the life and the ministry of Jesus to John Mark. And John Mark writes that down. So what we have in this Gospel is not an eyewitness account from John Mark. It's actually an eyewitness account from Peter given to John Mark. And, and what makes Mark so fascinating is it's the very first gospel account ever given to the church. Like there wasn't a gospel genre in scripture until John Mark sat down and wrote this. Matthew and Luke are actually going to go on to use much of the content from John Mark to kind of establish their own gospel accounts and their own narratives, but obviously giving their own insights and details as well. So here's what's so crazy about Mark. When you read it, remember, you're actually reading it through the eyes of Peter. So all those times where Peter says something stupid, Peter's telling John Mark those things that he said. All those mistakes that Peter and the other disciples make, Peter's recounting. He's selling himself out about his own mistakes. So that's the author. Who is Mark writing to? Well, the very first recipients of this book were actually a group of Christians huddled together under the most intense persecution that Christians probably have ever experienced to date. That it was one of the most incredibly painful times to be a follower of Jesus because of the level of persecution and opposition getting faced in Rome. These Christians that are reading this for the first time are actually huddled together in Rome and they're huddled together privately in secret because what had happened in 64 AD for those history nerds in the room is the Roman emperor Nero had most likely set fire to Rome and burned about 80% of Rome to the ground and then to kind of shift the blame off of himself, blamed Christians for setting the fire. And so this led to a government-sanctioned all-out attack against the early church, and, and it was insane to be a follower of Jesus in this moment. Nero was gathering up thousands and thousands of Christians, and he was persecuting them. He was, he was hurting them. And often what would happen is these Christians would then, under fear of persecution, they would deny even knowing Jesus, and then they would sell out other followers of Jesus and other people that they knew who were walking with Jesus, and then those people were getting arrested. And then what Nero would go on to do is he would take Christians and he would sew them alive into animal skins and throw them into the Colosseums to get eaten alive by wild beasts. He would set gladiators loose on them. He would force them to fight one another. Uh, he, he was doing all these things. At one point, he took Christians and he was uh, covering them in tar and then nailing them to crosses and burning them alive at his parties. You can see this, this uh, artistic rendering of just some of the things that were happening at the time to be a follower of Jesus in this moment was to be under the threat of persecution and of death. And so what would happen is that every Sunday morning, the church would gather secretly in these catacombs. Catacombs were a place where they would carry dead bodies and lay them to rest, these, these old tombs underneath Rome. And so the early church, unlike gathering the way we are now, would gather on Sunday mornings in secret for fear of persecution and fear of death. Those are the people that are receiving this letter. So everything that you read in the Gospel of Mark, remember, you're not just reading it through Peter's eyes, but you're reading it with the audience in mind of people that are suffering, people that are being persecuted for being a follower of Jesus, people that to be a follower of Jesus comes with an incredible cost at their own life. That's who 
the first recipients of this book are. How's this book structured? Well, well, this is really important to understand because Mark is brilliant. There are actually two authors to the gospel of Mark. The first is John Mark, and he's authoring this gospel from his unique perspective, having interacted with Peter, hearing the stories, getting all the details accurately recorded from Peter. But there's another author, and that's God the Holy Spirit. What's happening is this is actually structured in one of the most fascinating ways to understand this is really to like unlock the gospel of Mark in many ways. If you've ever seen the, the World War I film, 1917, what you know is it's just a fast-paced film that's all from one camera angle where one scene leads and kind of bleeds into the next, into the next, into the next, and it's just action from, from the very beginning of the movie to the very end. When I saw that movie, like, I think I got halfway through and took a breath for the first time and realized, like, oh, I've been so stressed watching this. I haven't, haven't been taking deep breaths because it's so fast-paced and action-filled. And in many ways, that's exactly how John Mark has structured his gospel. It's just fast-paced. There's a word used 41 times in his narrative, and it's the word immediately. It's like, immediately Jesus did this, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. And when you're reading it, you're kind of out of breath because you're like, man, slow down. But John Mark doesn't slow down. He doesn't even give any details about the birth of Jesus, no Christmas stories, no Magi, no star in Bethlehem, no childhood stories about Jesus. The story just launches right in, and we parachute into the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus when he's about 30 years old getting baptized, starting out his ministry. And for eight chapters, things fly by. Here's kind of how the book is divided. It's divided into two sections. The first section is chapters one through eight, and the major theme of the section is this. The king is here, and his name is Jesus. The king is here. He's arrived on the scene, and his name is Jesus. When you're reading the first eight chapters, that's the question, is who is this Jesus? And the answer is, he's actually the king. He's arrived on the scene. And one of the key focuses of these first eight chapters is on the authority of this king. In fact, the very first words that we have spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the very first sermon, if you will, shows up in Mark 1.14. Listen to what it says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God or the good news of God and saying, here are the very first words Jesus utters in this gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The very first sermon from Jesus is a statement of his authority saying, hey, I'm the king and I've actually arrived to bring the kingdom of God. With me is the arrival of the kingdom of God. If you're like, what's the kingdom of God? Well, that's the reign and rule of God over this earth. And if you remember the story of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, humanity rebels against God, they sin against God, and choose to reject Him as king and establish their own faux kingdoms, if you will. And what happens as a result of this is that the kingdom of God is basically broken apart from this world. This world was meant to be a place where the reign and the rule of God was located with humanity. But because of our sin, it broke the kingdom of God off of this world, and this world became enemy-occupied territory. Now, things like sin and brokenness and dysfunction and disease and death are rampant and running freely in this world, and the reign and the rule of God are 
in many ways feel absent. Where is God? Where is the king? Will he ever bring his kingdom back to this earth? And yet Jesus arrives on the scene in Mark, and he's saying, hey, I'm the king, and I came to bring my kingdom back to this earth. I came to bring the reign and the rule back to this earth. No longer will death have the final say. No longer will disease and, and pain and dysfunction and brokenness have the final say. I'm the king. I've arrived, and with my arrival is the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, what you have after this moment is all of these evidences, if you will, of the kingdom of God starting to get unleashed on planet earth. In Mark 1, 16 through 20, Jesus, with great authority, calls fishermen to follow him, and they drop their nets, they leave their careers, they leave their family cultures, all of it, and they come follow Jesus. In Mark 1, 21 and 22, the people are amazed at this king because he teaches with authority, and they'd never seen someone teach with this authority. In Mark 1.25, Jesus casts out a demon with authority. The demon is terrified in the presence of this king. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms a large storm with authority, and the disciples comment on that moment, and they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? In Mark 5.13, Jesus casts out not just one, but an entire legion of demons, and they're begging Jesus to, to be sent into pigs. Like, they're asking Jesus' permission to be sent into pigs because he came with authority. In Mark 5.29, Jesus heals a chronic disease that no other doctor or physician was able to heal. In Mark 5.41, Jesus raises a young girl who had tragically died. Not even death has the final say over this king and his authority. In Mark 6, 41, he feeds thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and fish. In Mark 6, 48, he walks on water. And on and on and on, the first eight chapters are filled with authority claims saying, Jesus is the king, and with him has come his kingdom. Think about it. Death, disease, demons, weather patterns, nothing can stand above his Authority And all of this, all of this is building. It's, it's, it's like it's building to this climax in chapter 8 when Jesus is walking with his disciples and he poses this question, hey, who do people say that I am? So Mark 8, if you have your Bibles, let's read this together. Look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. In other words, we recognize that there's something powerful about you, and the word on the street is, we're not really sure, right? You could be a prophet, you could be John the Baptist coming back from the dead, you could be Elijah coming back from the dead. We're not really sure, but there's something powerful and authoritative about you. And then notice his question, verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. That word Christ, don't think of the divinity of Jesus when you hear that. Jesus was divine, but that's not what that word means. Think of you are the king, or you are the anointed Messiah. You are the one that Israel has been waiting for. You're the king that we've read about that would one day come to bring the kingdom of God. When Peter's asked the question, he, he boldly says, you're the king, you're the Christ. This is like the, the aha moment when, when Peter starts to get it. He puts all the puzzle pieces together and he's like, you are 
the king. And then look at what Jesus says. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's part one. That's all of the first chapters, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, leading to this moment where Peter acknowledges the true identity of Jesus. But there's a problem. There's a problem. And here's where the shift happens and the rest of the Gospel of Mark has a turning point. Because when Peter says, you are the Christ, what Peter meant by that and what Jesus meant by that are two radically different things. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's very possible for you and I to have a conception of Jesus that's actually more based on our culture or more based on our Western secular view or more based on the brokenness of our own heart where we kind of build a Jesus in our own making. And that's the version of Jesus that we're often talking about. And that's the version of Jesus that we're often following. And that is exactly what the Apostle Peter is doing here. He's saying, you're the Christ. But what Peter means by that is, Okay, I've seen the way that you have authority over demons. I see the way that you have authority over death. I see the way that you have authority over disease and over the natural world. I can't wait to see how you unleash your powerful authority on Rome because Rome was their enemy. I can't wait to see how you crush our enemies and you bring back the the full nation of Israel with all of its glory and all of its prominence and all of its power. So when Peter is acknowledging Jesus as the Christ, what he means by that is very different than what Jesus means by that. So this is where the turning point happens. Look at verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, this Christ, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. You can almost feel in this moment Peter's utter confusion at what Jesus just said because his definition of Messiah does not include the Messiah dying. It includes the Messiah killing his enemies. So look at what Peter decides to do next. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Always a good idea. Just when you don't like something Jesus says, just rebuke him for it. Notice what Jesus does in response. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This leads to the second part of the Gospel of Mark, which is chapters 9 through 16. Yes, Jesus is the king, but friends, he's not the kind of king that you expected. Yeah, the king is here, and he's bringing his kingdom But who he is as the king and the kingdom he's bringing is not the kind of king or kingdom that you and I expected. Peter assumed that Jesus had arrived on the scene to crush Rome and give the disciples positions of political power and influence and restore the nation of Israel to prominence. That's what Peter is thinking. And yet Jesus is saying, yeah, I am the king, but not that type of king. I'm not actually coming to crush your enemies that you think you have, I'm here to deal with the enemies that you actually have. And so 9 through 16 of the Gospel of Mark are essentially Jesus deconstructing their vision of this Messiah and then reconstructing who he really is and what he means by king and what his kingdom is all about. So it's interesting that at this point in the story, Jesus will not stop talking about the cross. On three separate occasions, Starting in chapter 8, Jesus says, I'm going to die on a cross, and I'm going to rise from the dead. 
And every time he says this, the disciples dramatically misunderstand it. They don't get it. And they're almost like in sheer panic. No, 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 you're the king. You can't die. If you die, what does that mean for us? And Jesus is continually talking about the cross. And here's what's so fascinating about the Gospel of Mark. Remember how I said it was rapid, fast, immediately, immediately, immediately. It's a rushing. The first eight chapters are rushing. Well, when you get to chapter 11, it's like he pulls the e-brake and things dramatically come to a screeching halt. And though we've spent 11 chapters in kind of covering the first three years of Jesus's life and ministry, when you hit chapter 11 of Mark, he's going to take from chapters 11 through 16 and slow way down and look at one week in the life of Jesus. Imagine 11 chapters on almost three years of ministry, and then from chapters 11 to 16 on one week leading up to the death of Jesus Christ. That's because the cross is central to what John Mark is trying to get us to see. Friends, this king is not headed for a throne in Jerusalem, but a cross on Golgotha. Why? Well, we read this in Mark 10, 45. Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this king, he doesn't come to deal with who or what we thought was our problem. He didn't come to give his disciples or you and I today political power and influence and cultural clout. He's not interested in that at all. He didn't come to hate the same people that we hate and bring judgment on the people that we think deserve it. He didn't even come to make our lives better as the disciples were defining it in the first century or how you and I might define our lives as quote-unquote better as Americans in 2022. That's not what he came to do. The, the problem that they had and the problem that we had was not Rome or the lack of political power or cultural influence or all of that. Friends, the problem, the real enemies were Satan, sin, and death. And that's why Jesus came, was to deal with that and to actually ransom us from our truest enemies. And so as a result, what's happening in Mark is that he's not the kind of king that we expected, but he is the king that we actually need. Instead of powerfully riding into Jerusalem on a war horse to crush Rome, we see him humbly trotting into Jerusalem on a young donkey and climbing onto a, a cross. Instead of a warrior king, he comes as the suffering servant. Instead of being received with open arms from the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders of his day, he's actually handed over and betrayed and rejected and killed. Instead of destroying the Romans, one of the fascinating things about this gospel is he's actually coming to save them and forgive them. And ultimately, instead of giving his disciples positions of power and what they thought his kingdom would be, he invites them to deny themselves, to take up the cross and follow him into a life of faithful witness and suffering. And that story is so timely and so significant for you and I, and it leads to the last question that I want to contemplate with you. Why this gospel in this moment? Why this gospel? Why this take on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in this moment. See, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's timely, meaning when you study it carefully, you're gonna realize 
that the author actually had a specific group of people in mind. And he was writing to them and first for them, and it actually had something to say to them and their questions and their day and their culture in their moment. But it's not just timely for the people that originally received it. It's timeless because it's actually authoritative and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Meaning it doesn't matter where you find yourself in history, there's always a timeless take on this story. You don't have to try hard or edit it or modify it or do something strange with it. It always lands very appropriately for the people of God in our moment. The original recipients of this letter are sitting in catacombs reading this for the first time, and here we are today sitting in an old 24-7 fitness club, and it's just as timely for you and I as it was for them then. Why is that? How is that? Let me just give you a few things as we close. The first thing that this gospel is doing is it's exposing the messiahs of our own making. I've already said this, but how often is it that you and I take the misreading of Scripture, the brokenness in our own souls, and the, the specific worldview that we see things through, a, a Western secular worldview, and we approach Jesus with those things, and rather than allowing him to shape us, we actually shape him into the way that we want him to be. And we'll confess that Jesus is our Lord and Jesus is our Savior, but what we mean by Jesus might be radically different than who Jesus actually is as revealed to us in Scripture. You and I do this all the time where we make a Messiah that never tells us no. We make a Messiah that ironically hates all the people that we hate, that has all the same political preferences that we happen to have. We, hate, we, we embrace a Messiah who baptizes and affirms our broken sexual desires or a Messiah who allows us to live in the way that we want to live and doesn't ever tell us no because he happens to think that everything we're doing is just fine. If Peter can do that, friends, if Peter who spent three years with Jesus hearing him teach, getting to ask him questions, why would we think that we are immune to doing what Peter did? One of the things that this gospel is so beautiful and timely about is that it actually takes the real version of Jesus and dismantles our version to replace it with the real one. And I just want to invite you over the next several weeks between now and Easter as we spend the rest of our time going through this gospel to finish this gospel account out, let the real Jesus and Mark shape and confront and change the, the version of Jesus that you and I have formed over time. Let's let this version of Jesus become the Jesus that we're following and that we're, we're obeying. Amen? The second reason I think this is really important is because this is giving us a pastoral response to cultural pressures. Remember, they were sitting in catacombs reading this for the first time, wondering, if Jesus is our king, why are we suffering under Rome? If Jesus came for us to bring the kingdom of God, why are we hiding out in secret how do we understand the role that Jesus is calling us to to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him? Friends, they were experiencing in their day physical persecution, and we really know nothing about that as a Western culture, do we? Like, we're, we're really never facing the type of cultural pressures that people in other parts of this world in this very moment are facing for being followers of Jesus. But what we do face and what we do have in the West is the reality of cultural shame for being a Christian. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not very popular to be a Christian anymore. And that's changed dramatically even in the last five to seven years. I remember growing up, it was kind of expected that you'd be a Christian. In Oklahoma, we just assumed that everybody was. Now, uh, have you had that moment where like the new neighbor moves into town and they somehow find that you're a follower of Jesus and, and you get the sense that like your relationship is now awkward because they think that you're the problem? You ever feel that way? Like, oh, you're one of those people. And, and you feel the need to like do the, no, 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 I'm not the type of Christian that you've met in the past. And I'm not, and he, what is that? It's because you and I are facing cultural shame for being followers of Jesus. We're increasingly having to deal with what feels like being on the quote unquote wrong side of history. It's like, how do we grapple with some of the teachings of Jesus that don't, don't really seem to be uh, acceptable in our moment today? How do we do that? Well, this gospel is giving us the answer to those questions. Watching the ways that Peter and the disciples are wrestling and even stepping into suffering and persecution is actually giving us helpful formation on how you and I can embrace the cultural shame as followers of Jesus. Listen, friends, not for being jerks for Jesus, nobody should be jerks for Jesus, but for being genuine followers of Jesus. How do we do that? This book is gonna help us with that. The third reason why this book is so timely for us today is because of the cost of discipleship. We've seen moments again and again in this gospel where followers of Jesus are confronted with what it actually means to get behind Jesus and follow in his way. And in a moment of deconstruction and compromise in our world today, this is a really timely gospel account. Uh, we've read already stories where people initially hear the word and they receive it but then things get hard and they fall away. Mark 4, 17, when they hear the word, Jesus says, they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Mark 4, 19, those who hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. We read about the sobering story of the rich young ruler who had all that the world could offer and Jesus says, hey, I want you to actually give all your possessions away, sell all your stuff, give all your money away to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus sad. The whole point of this book is to get us to grapple with the cost of what it means to follow after Jesus. And it kind of culminates with that famous teaching from Jesus in Mark 8, calling to the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the last reason why I think this book matters for us is this. It's an offer of grace for complete screw-ups. Any screw-ups in the room? If you're not a, like, yeah, we should all raise our hands because we're all, if you're not a screw-up, like, I just don't think that Christianity is gonna make much sense to you because Christianity is inherently for screw-ups, and nothing tells that story quite as good as the gospel of Mark. Here's what I mean. There are two levels of screw-ups that we see in the gospel of Mark. The first, level one screw-ups. Think about this. No sane person in this gospel account correctly identifies who Jesus is. No sane person. Not Jesus' own family, not his disciples, not the religious leaders of the day that have spent years studying the Torah. Nobody gets it right. You're like, well, Peter got it right. Well, sort of. Peter said Jesus was the Messiah, but what he meant by that was something different. And right after that, Jesus calls him Satan, so he didn't really get it right. You know the only sane person who gets it right in the whole book? It's at the very end. 
and it was a Roman soldier who just executed Jesus. And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on, and he goes, this really was the Son of God. Think about it. Rome's the enemy in the story, and he's the only guy who actually gets it right about who Jesus, is real identi- who Jesus really is and what his identity is. The point is this. If you're a complete failure, and you've done nothing but wrong your whole life, that still doesn't disqualify you to be loved and forgiven and adopted by Jesus into his family. Second level of screw-ups that we see are guys like Peter, who again and again say and do the wrong thing, so much so that it culminates where Peter's worst moment of his life, he denies even knowing Jesus on three separate occasions. He denies even knowing Jesus as Jesus is on trial and about to be executed. Jesus sees Peter there, and Peter's saying, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And then Peter afterwards goes out and weeps bitterly. Friends, how do we know that Peter did that? Remember, Peter is telling this story to John Mark. He's including the story of his denial in the gospel account to show us that even if you've spent a lifetime of denying Jesus, even if you've done something that feels unforgivable, even if you've done something that is so shameful that you're like, maybe I could be forgiven, but I'll never ever be restored. I'll never be welcomed back in. I'll never be allowed to actually have a life that can be meaningful and a benefit and a blessing to other people. I'll never be able to do that. Actually, the answer of Mark is Jesus can restore you. He can love you even through the unlovely times. He can actually cover shame and he can bring you back in in such a way that you're not only just living in the shadow of your shame for the rest of your life, you're not doing that, but actually your life becomes a benefit and a blessing for his good. That's what the gospel of Mark is all about.